You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today, we have a guest speaker. Well, good morning. It's great to be with this morning. I've been looking forward to this weekend coming out here. And uh, it has been so encouraging just to be with you all. And uh, get to know both, both the mainly my time has been spent with the youth. So to get to know some of the youth leaders who are just fantastic young adults, and then to see what God is doing in the life of your youth, church, you should be encouraged. God is raising up another generation here that's just amazing. I mean, they were passionately worshiping God, attentively listening, even though I, I doubt how much sleep they actually got on the weekend. But there was no there was no sleepers. It was ama- it was amazing. No, you know, they, they listened to the whole thing, and and one of the things that really impressed me. Um, is I didn't see a youth ever sitting by themselves. I always saw them just reaching out and connecting with one another. And uh, that's just really, really awesome. And so you should be encouraged what God's doing. Rob is doing a great job leading them. And uh, it's just been, yeah, you should appreciate him. It's been, it's been an absolute, an absolute joy. And uh, so I love coming here. I love staying out with your, uh, your pastoral team. I was able to get some lunch with them the other day at Testa Pizza, which was a phenomenal experience. And uh, just you are so well served with these guys. It is a, it's been a privilege to come and just draw them out and learn from them. And so I am, uh, I'm pleased and excited to be able to go back to Philadelphia and say, hey, guess what? There is actually something good going on in the Dallas area. So um, praise God for the unity we have in Christ. If you go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, if you're new to the Bible, Romans is kind of towards the back to the New Testament, the books that are written uh, after Jesus came. And every Bible, it's really cool, has a cheat sheet, so you can just look at the table of contents, and I'll tell you where the book of Romans is in. Look for the big number. We're in Romans chapter 8, just going to be looking at two verses, verses 31 and 32. And something that I talk to my church about a lot is that we need to have in our Bibles well-worn pathways. By well-worn pathways, I mean familiar places that we can go to again and again that serve our souls, particularly when crisis hits. Because when crisis hits, things can become cloudy and can start to spiral quickly. And so trying to figure out where to go for stability in God's word, you don't want to be figuring out that when you're going through a hard time. You want to be, have well-worn pathways and be ready that when something hits, I know where I can go to steady my soul. Romans 8, 31 and 32 is one of those well-worn pathways for me. When I was eight years old, I was diagnosed with something called Crohn's disease. It's actually something that Craig and I have been able to talk about as some of those children are challenged with that as well. And it, it's been a significant challenge for me. I've had uh, since eight, um, I was counting it out to make sure that the number is accurate. And I believe it is about 14 different surgeries. Um, I've been uh, in very serious situations uh, twice where, you know, we're not exactly sure how things were going to go. Um, and there's never been a year uh, since I was 17, there's never been a year where I've not been uh, in the hospital. So it's about 17 years where at least at some point I'm having some kind of hospital stay. So far, so good in 2020. Um, but, uh, but as I've been dealing with this for, for several decades now, Romans 8, 31, 32 has just become a place where, where I can go to. It's a place where the Lord has ministered to, to my wife and I as we walk through two miscarriages. Um, it's a place where we went to when 
uh, my stepfather-in-law, who I was very close to, there was, there was really no step in that. It was just, he was just another dad to me. I died of a tragic accident at a young age. You know, when crisis hits, you need places to go. And I hope that these verses become a place that, that you can go. But not just a place for comfort. I, I also hope and I believe that these verses have a calling for us as well. They're a comfort to us, but they also have a, a calling to us because they call us to have a certain kind of life. So let's, let's go ahead and read God's Word together in Romans 8, verse 31 and 32. This is what God says through the lips of His servant Paul. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Would you pray with me that God will bless the reading and now the preaching of his word? God, I pray that you would come and you just minister to our souls in this moment. Lord, I pray whether there are people here who have been following you for decades, or whether there are people here who maybe this is their first time darkening the door of a church. I pray that your word would meet us where we're at, would speak to our hearts. I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, a far better sermon would be heard than the one I'm actually going to preach. And I pray that as a result, your precious people here would be edified, that you would be glorified. And that the enemy would be horrified. I praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here's the title of the sermon, if you're into sermon titles. It's, it's also my first point. And to keep things convenient, it's also my only point. Um, it's short and it's simple, but, but it, I hope it doesn't come across as trite. Because I, I believe it's a profound truth that we're actually going to spend all of eternity marveling at, but never fully understanding. It's, it's a short statement that, that I think can provide a, a solid anchor for our souls as the, the, the winds of life blow against us. And, it, and it's a calling that, quite frankly, can turn things for us upside down if we embrace it. Here's what I think God is getting after in these verses. It's this. God always wins. God always wins. And this, quite frankly, just, just changes everything. So let's, let's walk through this, this text together. First, just to set the context, Paul is, is writing this letter to, to a church who is, who is in Rome. And he, he starts by, by asking two rhetorical questions. Right? Rhetorical questions are questions where the answer is supposed to be obvious kind of guys like when you know our wives or girlfriends ask us how do I look in this right the answer is supposed to be obvious they're not really looking for an opinion in that moment Uh, there's only one appropriate answer Um, Paul is asking these these rhetorical questions where the answer is supposed to be obvious if God is for us who can be against us the answer is supposed to be obvious no one If God didn't spare his own son, how will he not also give us all things? The answer is supposed to be obvious. He certainly will. Those answers are supposed to be obvious, but but can we be honest for a moment? I know you're a church that that values honesty. Um, I don't think those answers always feel so obvious. Who can be against us? Can it feel like all kinds of things can be against us? 
Will God give us all things? Well, it doesn't certainly feel like he is denying us many things. I mean, if we're just honest, if, if Paul is saying here that God always wins, why does it seem that God often is doing a lot of losing? Is it sacrilegious to say that? Well, I don't think it is because much of Romans 8, actually, that Paul's writing this is, is, is it's, it's in the context he's talking and addressing the suffering in the world and how hard things in life are. That, that's the context. He just got done writing in verses 18 and 20 about how all of creation is, is groaning under the brokenness that's happening all around us. And that brokenness that existed in the world, that wasn't just some kind of like theoretical thing for Paul. It was actually intensely personal. The same guy who, who wrote this also wrote the following to a church in, in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is how he talks about his life. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Life has been hard for Paul. And how does he feel about it? He feels weak. He's got scars on his body and scars that he's carrying on his heart. He, he's been toiling, which means that, that he is working with seemingly no progress being made. Life certainly does not feel victorious for Paul. And he's not scared to say that. He's not scared to say that he, he feels weak. And he's not scared to name and talk about his specific struggles. Listen, friends, we can't appreciate how God always wins if we are not first honest about what feels like loss. Because if we're not opening up and just being honest about how how we are struggling, you know what we're doing? We're actually empowering our struggles. Because we're effectively saying that our struggles are too big and too scary to even talk about. And so in our culture, it might say, hey, listen, just be strong. You know, soldier through, suppress down, don't whine. You know, don't talk about things. And that feels like, like it's powerful, but actually it's not. What we're doing is when we do that, when we suppress our struggles, when we don't talk about them, when we're not opening up and honest in our small groups, we're empowering those struggles and we're letting them have control over our hearts. Friends, we can't say that we believe in God's victory if we don't believe that his victory doesn't allow us the ability to be honest about our struggles. And so I just want to ask you a question. What is against you today? What is against you today? Maybe you're here and you're like, I lost a job, and so my finances seem to be against me. I've got a mortgage that's against me. I've got debts that are against me. I'm in trouble. 
Man, I've got a boss that is against me. My job is just sucking the life out of me. I've got friends who are against me. I'm I'm feeling lonely. I feel unwanted. I, I feel unloved. I've got school that's against me. Deadlines that are overwhelming. Stuff going on with classmates that is just painful. I've got health that's against me. I'm sick. I'm in pain. Things are not getting better. Maybe you're saying, I've got a spouse that's against me. My marriage is on the rocks, and I do not see any hope for a future. Maybe you're saying, I've got children who are against me. They've abandoned the faith. They've had moral failings. There's, There's been maybe what's even felt like a betrayal. Maybe you're hearing like, wow, I've lost children or, or I've lost a loved one and there's been an untimely death. Friends, what is against you today? What is against you? Faith in God never means denying that we struggle. No, faith means being able to look at our struggles full on to be able to name them, to be able to feel them, to see the truth of that struggle, but then at the same time know there is another truth, there is a deeper truth at play. And so faith is being able to say, my struggle is real and I'm honest about it, but there is something that is even more real. Here's what's even more real. What shall we say to these things if God is for us, Who can be against us? Here's another way to say what Paul is saying. That which is against us is never greater than the God who is for us. Or in other words, God always wins and praise the Lord, he's put us on his team. Friends, it's saying here that God is for us. And I really don't know if there's any more precious words in all of Scripture than these four words. God is for us. Think about what this is saying. This is saying that the universe, the creator of the universe, the the sustainer of all things, the all-powerful, all-wise, present everywhere at all times, transcendent, glorious, holy, exalted above the heavens. That incredible, incomprehensible God is for you if you placed your faith in Jesus. The context of this is Paul is writing to those, he says in, in verse 28 of chapter Eight, who know, so those who love God. Paul's writing this to those who, who love God. They place their faith in Jesus. They have embraced him. They have given their lives to him. And for those who know this love of God by faith, God is never against us. God is always for us. And Paul has already spelled out the content of what it means for God to be for us. Very famous verse, Romans 8, 28. This is what it means for God to be for us. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Do you see that? For those who love God, all things work together for good. Notice that word, all. All things work together for good. Which means even those things 
that you may be named a few minutes ago, those things that right now seem to be against you, if God is for you, then everything that happens in your life, even those things are ultimately for your good. Because God always wins. And evil is never going to be able to get over on him. Commentaries really say that in many ways, verse 31 is is a summary response to what Paul has unpacked in, in verses 28 through 30. In those verses, Paul just goes through these incredible and precious promises of God. We just read the first in verse 28, that he's working all things for our good. Here, let me just summarize the other ones. He says that God's going to make us more and more into the character of Christ. He says that God is going to justify us. means that he's going to declare us innocent from our sins. And not just innocent, but he's going to declare us to be righteous. He says that God is going to glorify us. Which means that we're going to be raised up into glorious splendor, into God's dwelling place in heaven, where we're going to be loved eternally as his glorious sons and daughters. And it says all this is because, not that we're these good people who just earned this from God. No, all this is because God set his affections upon us even before the foundation of the world. That, that's verses 20 through 30. And so as we come to verse 31, it's almost like Paul is at a loss for words. You know, it's, he's saying if God is for us in all these incredible, explosively volcanic ways, if all of these promises are true, then, then what shall we say to these things? Like, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we say. And this is what this means. This means that there is nothing that comes into the believer's life that is not first passed through the hands of God, the God who is for you. Or in other words, there, there is nothing that happens to us that God will allow to ultimately be against us. There is nothing that, that can happen to us that, that God will allow to derail the promises that he has made for us. God always wins, and so his promises always come true. And so what do we do when we feel like his promises are not coming true right now? Well, Paul certainly is not encouraging us here to bury our heads. No, he actually is going to go on to say this in verse 36. He's looked down. He says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the situation for the church in Rome, and actually most of the Christians in the first century. They're being killed for their faith. So you, want to, you want to talk about feeling like God is losing? They're literally losing their lives. Their, their life, as they surveyed it, feels like, man, we're just, we're just lambs consistently being led to the slaughter. And maybe, maybe there's people here today who feel like that's what your life looks like. As you look out over the landscape, man, if, God, if God's for us, I, I don't feel like God is for me at all. I feel like a lamb that's just being led to slaughter in life. Just trouble after trouble. If God's for me, I don't see God being for me. I don't see it happening. Friends, if right now you don't see God being for you and you don't feel God being for you, I just want to help you look 
at the text again a little bit closer. Paul does not say in verse 31, what shall we say in response to these things that we see? He doesn't say, what shall we say in response to these things that we feel? When he says, what shall we say in response to these things? It's a reference to the promises that we've been given in God. And so what you see right now, it might be hard. And what you feel right now might be painful. But friends, there is a deeper truth at play. There is a bigger story going on. What we see and what we feel does not define what God is going to allow to ultimately happen. What will define the end of our story is not what we see right now and not what we feel right now. What's going to define the end of our story is all of God's promises coming true. Because God always wins. And really behind verse 31 is story after story after story of God winning through keeping his promises for his people. Let let me just just take us on a, a quick little tour here of scripture. Think about Joseph. Right, his brothers hate him because he has a dream that one day he's going to be over him and he was stupid enough to tell his brothers that dream. So, so what do they do? They throw him in a pit and then they sell him into slavery in Egypt. Joseph goes to work for a man and, and it seems that he's starting to prosper as he's put in charge of the whole house but then the man's wife falsely accuses him of attempted rape and so he's put into jail. After years of being in prison, his, his hopes go up because he's able to interpret the, the dreams of Pharaoh's butler. And the butler promises to get him out of prison, but then the butler forgets. And then finally, after about 17 years of, of nothing apparently working to good, together for good for Joseph, he's able to have the opportunity to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh rewards him by making him a kind of, you know, vice president in charge of all the food distribution. And he's able to help them get through a seven-year famine. A famine that was not only going to threaten the people of Egypt, but was also going to threaten Joseph's family back in Canaan. And so the brothers who hated him and and tried to get rid of him, they end up coming to Egypt. And he, he shows them mercy and saves his family from starvation. And God's promises to preserve his people come true. And the point of that story is really given to us in, in two different texts. Here's the first text in Genesis 45-7. This, this is what Joseph says. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. This word sent is important for interpreting the main text of the story, which is namely uh, Genesis 50-20, where Joseph says this to his brothers. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Friends, this is God being for Joseph. This is God keeping his promises. This is God winning. But please notice carefully the way that God is for Joseph. God's for Joseph. Not by, he's not just kind of watching these evil events unfold in Joseph's life with no purpose and no design. He's not saying, oh man, this happened. Like, what am I going to be able to do with this? How can I make lemonade out of these lemons? No. He says that just as Joseph's brothers meant it, meaning they purposed it, they designed evil for him, 
at the same time, God meant it, meaning he designed it, he purposed it for good. And this is why that word sent is just so important in verse, uh, in chapter 45, verse 7. Because what that's saying is that the brother's selling of Joseph into slavery was God sending Joseph for their salvation in the years to come. See, what they did was evil, and it was wrong, and it hurt Joseph. For decades, he had to live with the consequences of their evil actions. But that which was evil was also that which was good. It was true that it was evil. There's no denying that. But there was also a deeper truth going on. The evil that was against Joseph could not stop the God who was for Joseph because God always wins. It doesn't mean that things don't hurt us. But it does mean that there is nothing that can derail God's promises for us. Think about Job. You may recall the many terrible things that happened to Job. He lost his wealth. He lost his children. He lost his health. In every case, it says that he acknowledged the sovereign hand of God, even though Satan was the one who was bringing all this heartache into his life. But then the last chapter, the the writer of the book says that his friends and family gathered and and watch in verse uh, chapter 42, verse 11 of Job. It says, and they showed him sympathy and comfort to him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. So the view of Job and the writers that God did not just bring good out of Job's misery, but that God was actually the one who was purposing Job's misery. Satan was the one who did the evil, but God was the one who was purposing it. Why? Why could God do that? Well, we're given God's answer when the Bible gives us this divine commentary. I love when the Bible comments it on itself. It's like we don't even need commentaries anymore. We just, God's our commentator. He says this in James chapter 5, verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so you see, why do all these things happen for Job? Well, Satan was against Job. Satan was trying to bring trouble to Job, but God was for Job. And so the trouble that Satan meant for evil and to harm him God meant for Job's good that through these things, Job would actually come to know more of God's compassion and mercy. Think about the story of Esther. You've got a young, beautiful Jewish girl who's forced into the harem of an unclean pagan Gentile king. She's ripped from her family, ripped from her friends, ripped from her culture, the only life that she's ever known. Why did that happen? Why would God allow such a thing? Well, we're given the answer when the Jews are about to be slaughtered by by one of the king's evil princes making a plan. And because Esther now had a relationship with the king, she's in a position to to plead on behalf of her people. And here's what her uncle Mordecai said as he's trying to encourage her to be be bold and to ask the king for his help. He, He says to her, and who knows... Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such time as this? Who knows? God knows. God knows and we know because now we know the end of the story. Right? And Esther came to the kingdom through all her humiliation and all her defilement. She was at the same time sent there to save God's people because God always wins. I'll give you one more, although we could go all day, couldn't we? Think about David. 
Right? You've got the Philistine army. They, they come against the people of Israel. And the giant Goliath dares them to come and fight against them. And he just mocks them and he, he ridicules them. And they're humiliated because no one has the courage to fight the giant. But along comes a young shepherd boy. A boy who had been left at home. A boy who had been disregarded. A boy who had been told that, that he was useless, that there was nothing he could do. He steps forward, not because he's trying to be some kind of hero, but what does he say? He steps forward because he believed the battle belonged to the Lord. And the giant that was against him fell before him and became the platform from which God's power was proclaimed and David was set up to eventually become king. God always wins. God always wins. And maybe you're here and you're saying, well, listen, that's nice for those people. Those are nice Bible stories, but that's just, that's just not my life. Friends, I bet Joseph didn't think it was his life when he was sitting in prison for 17 years. I, I, I bet Job didn't think it was his life when he had found out that his children had just all been killed. I bet Esther didn't think it was her life when she was taken from his home. And I bet David didn't think it was his life when he was left behind. It wasn't even allowed to come in and, 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 and line up with his brothers. See, it's easy for us to look at those stories and see how God is working in them. Why? Because we know the end of the story. But when our story is still going on, that makes it a whole lot harder. But listen, friends, we, we can't judge our story. We can't give in to fear. We cannot give up on believing in what God can do and close the book of our lives before it's over. Friends, when we don't see God moving, when we feel like nothing is happening, what do we do? We need to keep reading the story. We need to keep flipping the page and trusting that, yes, this is a dark chapter, but this chapter is not going to be the end of my story. And so I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to keep living by faith. I'm going to keep embracing the fact that even though I don't see God moving, even though I don't feel God moving, I believe God's promises are true and he always wins. And so I'm going to keep living through faith. doesn't mean that tragedy might not strike. It might. But friends, what all of biblical testimony, and really if you start studying Christian history, what all of Christian history shows is that God always keeps his promises because God always wins. And if we are still not yet convinced, <laughs> Paul breaks out the most significant evidence for this truth. He takes us to the most compelling argument ever made that God is for us and that there is nothing that could be against us. Paul takes us to the cross. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? This is a logic from the greater to the lesser. It's like, man, if God could do this, this incredible act of not even sparing his own son, how can he not also do this? Graciously give us all that we need. See, the ultimate basis for trusting that God always wins comes from what God has done in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so I think we are well served if we just slow down and consider what it means that God did not spare his own son but deliver him up for us all. Think about this. First, it's saying very particularly, this is his own son. There's a stress being put on there. Jesus is not a mere prophet. He's not a mere spiritual guru. He's not a good person. He's not a moral teacher. No, Jesus is God's very own son. Meaning he is the pre-existent, indeed ever-existent, co-eternal, non-created, divine image of the Father in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, Colossians 2.9. He is the one in whom God the Father has existed in perpetual relationship of love for all eternity, Matthew 3.7. Oh, God delights and he cherishes, he, he loves his own Son. And so in many ways, the, the point of verse 32, how it's starting up, is it's, it's setting up this, this tension where God's love for his own son is like this massive Mount Everest obstacle between God and our salvation. Like, could God, would God overcome his cherishing, admiring, treasuring, white-hot, affectionate bond with his own son? Could he possibly deliver him over to be lied about and betrayed and abandoned and mocked and flogged and beaten and spit on and nailed to a cross and, and butchered like an animal? This is his own son! He who did not spare his own son. God saw what was bearing down on his son. He saw the judgment for sin that was coming upon him. Oh, oh, the cross was the most infinitely horrible way for the son of God to be treated. Sin reached its worst in those hours. Because on the cross, our, our sin was exposed for what it really is. Sin is an attack on God. It's choosing to live our way instead of God's way. It is asserting our right for independence from our Creator. Sin is an assault. On God. And so that sin had to be crushed. It had to be destroyed for the holy offense that it is. And so God saw his holy judgment that is coming down upon his son on the cross, and he does not spare him from it, but instead delivered him up. Gave him up. Who killed Jesus? The Bible says that. Judas delivered him over in Mark 3.19. Mark 15.15, it says Pilate delivered him over. Acts 4.27, it says that Herod and the Jewish people and the Gentiles delivered him over. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says that we delivered him over in our sin. John 10.17, Jesus says that he himself delivered himself over. But here's what God is saying through his servant Paul the ultimate thing going on in and beneath and through all those human deliverings, it's ultimately God who's delivering, who's giving up his son to death. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man, referring to Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of 
God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so in Judas and Pilate and Herod and the Jewish crowds and the Gentile soldiers and our sin and Jesus' own choice, ultimately it is the Father who is delivering over, who is giving up his Son. Friends, there's no greater sacrifice that's ever been made. There's no more gut-wrenching choice that has ever occurred. There's no more powerful act of love that's ever been shown. You want to know if God loves you? I feel so lost. I feel abandoned. I feel like I've got this going on in my life, and this feels very real to me, and God just feels distant. He feels so removed. I'm reading my Bible, and it feels dry. I'm trying to pray, and I don't feel like I'm hearing from him. God, are you even there? God, do you even love me? Oh, friends, he did not spare his own son for you, but gave him up in an infinite act of love. He didn't spare him. He delivered him because he loves you. What shall we say to this? What shall we say to this? What what, what do we say to the God who has so proved his love for us? Oh, how can we not also then trust that he will not withhold any good thing from us? What is happening to us right now might not seem good. It might not feel good. We might not have any idea how it possibly could be good. But if God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, oh, this God is also going to always come through for us. One of my favorite historical preachers is a guy named John Flavel, who's a Puritan. He says it this way when he was preaching on this sermon. He says, how is it imaginable that God should withhold after this from his people? How shall he not clothe them, feed them, protect them, and deliver them? Surely if he would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that he ever should after this deny or withhold from his people for whose sakes all this was suffered any mercies any comforts any privilege spiritual temporal which is good for them God always does what is good for us if you believe that he gave his own son for you this is what you believe And all the Christian life is simply the fruit of that faith. Oh, look to Christ. Look to the love of God. Live in love and fear no more. Oh, yes and amen. Why is life hard? Why does evil happen? I'll be honest, I don't know. There's not easy answers to those things. But here's what we do know. If God can use the greatest evil of all time, which is the death of his own son, in open shame, exposed, humiliated, tortured, the only innocent one, executed by sinful man, if God can use that evil for good, then how can we ever question if anything else could be for good? Listen, Satan and evil, they they thought they won the day. 
when Jesus was dying on the cross. Like they, they reveled at the sight. They're like, man, finally God has lost. We trapped him. And now he is here defeated. He is dead. They didn't know that three days later, God was going to prove that he always wins when he didn't stay dead, but rose victorious into resurrected life so that now any of us who have faith in him, our shame, our sin lies behind in the grave in his death and we can be risen to new life in Jesus. Friends, God always wins. God always wins. And so, friends, we do not ever have to doubt any promise of God as we look to the bloody cross that reminds us of his love and we look to the empty tomb that reminds us his promises always come true. And so, friends, I, I just pray that this be a passage that, that we would live out of. I pray it's a passage that you would be able to live out of. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, I, I pray that this passage will become something that would cause you to, to place your faith and trust in Jesus. Oh, if you bend your knee to Jesus, then, then God can become forever on your side. If you're here and you're a believer, here's, here's how I think we need to respond. First, again, we should just be comforted by this. Oh, this is an anchor and a rest for our soul. But I think that we need to consider a little broader the, the context that Paul's writing this in. He, he's not just writing this in to, to comfort these people. He certainly is. But here's what's going on. Christians are dying. Satan is raging. There's a war very tangibly going on between light and darkness. And so what's he going to do after this? He's going to go on to tell them that they are more than conquerors. Even though all this is happening, he's trying to speak not just comfort into them, he's trying to speak courage into them to continue to live out the Christian faith. He's going to say, you are more than conquerors. Why? Because the battle that you're experiencing right now, this has already been won by God because God always wins. And so the Roman Empire was against them. The Judaizers were against them. Everything was against them. But because God was for them and because God always wins, God is encouraging them that they are not going to ultimately be defeated in the cause of Christ. And so you know what this is? This, this isn't just a comfort, friends. In many ways, this verse, these verses, they're a battle cry. This is a battle cry to move forward in the cause of Christ, knowing that God always wins. This is a battle cry for us here today, for you here today in Frisco, to, to not be passive toward the devil or resign towards evil or the brokenness of this world. It's a call and a battle cry, not just to, to give in to American consumerism and, and materialism. It's a, it's a call to go out and to take risks and to spread the good news of Jesus, to go into hard places and to do hard things in the cause of love. This is a battle cry to spend ourselves for Christ and his kingdom and to devote ourselves to doing good to others, knowing that in God our labors are not in vain. Oh, friends, these verses are a call for us to do something radical and crazy in the eyes of the world and to let our hearts dream about how we might invest our lives to move towards need and not towards just our own comfort. No matter what it costs, because whatever it costs, it will ultimately be for our good because God always wins.
God always wins. Oh, what a powerful force the church of God could be. How far the kingdom of God could go. How much the enemy would run in terror. How great would be the name of our God if we as God's people would only simply believe and live in the truth that God always wins. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.